We believe the core of the cultural fissure between crypto and Bitcoin comes down to financialization. While the ethos of Bitcoin is to definancialize, the ethos of crypto is to financialize. We repeat our characterization of this tendency from above. DeFi engages in arbitrary and automatable combinations of seniorage, securitization, rehypothecation, and leverage. It is the purest form of financialization ever conceived. The financialization of nothing at all. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We are reading the second half of Green Eggs and Ham, Decentralized Finance, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, today by Big Al and Alan Farrington. Uh, this is a great piece, and you are going to love the conclusion if you have uh, already dug into part one. But if you haven't yet, you're not going to know where we are or what's happening. So. Uh, yesterday's episode, I'll have the link in the show notes if you're just jumping in on this one. This is the second half of a rather long but rather amazing uh, piece. It's kind of a follow-up to their Only the Strong Survive, um, and uh, which also, also I highly, highly recommend. And I'm going to, I explained this in the guy's take, that I'm going to do a, a guy's take solo episode on this. Um, because I think it wraps in really well with another conversation or another topic that I was planning to do. Um, so uh, uh, we will have that probably at the beginning-ish of next week because I'm also getting into Alex Gladstein's piece on the IMF and the World Bank and the, the international monetary system and how it's being used and has been set up to basically abuse and colonize a lot of the world. That is always a fascinating topic, and you know me, I love Gladstein's pieces, so we will be getting into that. Um, so lots of stuff coming really soon. But uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into part two of Alan Farrington's and Big Al's breakdown of the conceptual and technical problems in quote-unquote DeFi. Real quick, I want to thank CoinKite and for, for the cold card and just generally for making such amazing Bitcoin hardware and security devices, um, check them out 10% off. Link and code are in the show notes. Then Swan Bitcoin for being the best, simplest onboarding service with so much information. You have got to check them out if you haven't. And then, of course, the fold card that gets you sats back on everything in your life. Guys, seriously, earning Bitcoin? getting percentages back in Bitcoin on your Christmas shopping, it feels pretty special. Links for all three in the show notes. With that, let's get into part two, the second half of uh, Green Eggs and Ham, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly of Decentralized Finance. And we are jumping in on the section titled Part Three, The Short Sad Saga of FTX. 2 plus 2 equals 5. Winston Smith auditing Alameda's balance sheet. From the golden child of crypto to the pariah of the industry, 
The fall of FTX and Alameda is arguably the single largest failure in the history of the crypto space. Alameda came first. It was a trading firm specializing both in arbitrage and directional trading strategies of crypto DeFi tokens of all stripes. These are common in all advanced markets, with crypto being especially lucrative due to the inefficiencies in information and the ability to centrally and costlessly issue these tokens with no credible enforcement mechanism for the commitments attached. Then came FTX, an exchange. In its truest form, an exchange should have one simple task, pair buyers and sellers and take a fee for facilitating the trade. This can be a steady and profitable business. Zvi Moshowitz puts it crisply as follows. FTX builds a pretty good product outside of the fraud and the insolvency and the stealing customer deposits and does a lot of things very well. The competition really is pretty terrible, so it doesn't take much to offer a superior product. FTX's claim to fame was in offering the riskiest trading experience in crypto DeFi. It allowed for high leverage in futures products that were hard to find elsewhere. In particular, the ability to use just about any stablecoin, native, governance, utility, or voucher token as trading collateral at risk of liquidation. Instead of a customer giving the exchange all the money they would like to trade up front, the exchange begins to lend to the customer in order for them to speculate on tokens. FTX was not the only exchange to offer this service, but it was by far the most aggressive. Risk management is the foremost priority of any financial firm offering credit. From real estate on the one hand to crypto DeFi tokens that can be costlessly and centrally issued ad infinitum and then used as collateral for leverage on the other, the lender must manage this risk. We will not go into too much detail here, but essentially this task boils down to mitigating timing mismatches. Here is where it gets truly wacky. Like many in crypto DeFi, Alameda had the idea of creating their own DeFi token, FTT, in advance of launching FTX, a kind of ICO for both a token and a company. The alleged commitment to holders was derived from the promise that a portion of profits from FTX would be used to buy up the token. Of course, there was no credible enforcement mechanism. And so although we might think of FTT as pseudo-equity in FTX, it is subordinate to actual equity and subject to the whims of its centralized issuers, FTX management. FTT was a voucher token that meant whatever FTX and Alameda decided it meant. With the exceptionally dubious premise for valuation of this costlessly and centrally issued voucher token in mind, Consider that both FTX and Alameda at various points decided to use FTT as collateral for leverage. This added a ticking time bomb of truly insane risk. Insofar as it found any value in the market, FTT could only really be thought of as a bet on the success and health of FTX. By utilizing FTT as collateral, FTX made its balance sheet both more leveraged and on top of this, as vulnerable as a whole as FTT was in particular. 
Although few outside suspected it at the time, especially as FTX was, quote, rescuing the likes of Voyager and BlockFi, i.e. bailing in their customer deposits, FTX's balance sheet was mighty vulnerable. Although details are still emerging, the picture is becoming clearer that Alameda appears to have made enormous losses on directional bets in crypto DeFi, including VC-like investments, up to and around the time of the Terra Luna collapse in May. By some accounts, Alameda may have lost over $15 billion, much of it on leverage that was then called in. It is suspected that Alameda veered in this direction once its early edge in the market making deteriorated as the overall crypto market began to mature. In order to prevent Alameda's collapse, which likely would have immediately caused the failure of FTX also, given their often illegal interrelationship, the Wall Street Journal reports that FTX lent Alameda over half its customers' deposits to plug this gap. It is plausible that FTT was used as collateral for this loan on the FTX side. Lucas Nutzi at Coinmetrics has speculated that a September 28th transfer of $4 billion worth of vested FTT may well have been Alameda paying FTX back for this initial loan. This is all rather amusing given FTX is the entity that creates, issues, and allegedly redeems FTT in the first place. In any case, the customer deposits were gone and FTX ended up with a balance sheet leveraged to a voucher token it created and almost exclusively traded on its own exchange. Macro analyst Lynn Alden captured the absurdity of the situation nicely as follows. Imagine McDonald's makes its own money. Let's call them clown bucks. Keeps most of it and sells some to the market. McDonald's then uses their remaining clown bucks as collateral for actual loans. And then people remember that clown bucks aren't real. A November 2nd Coindesk article leaked details of this precarious situation. This in turn prompted a tactical open market sale of FTT by Binance, which was too large for the market or the team at Alameda to prop up. Binance held around 10% of the token supply after investing early in FTX and being bought out in 2021 for a combination of stablecoins and FTT. This led to the death spiral of self-fulfilling rumors as panic spread and depositors desperately tried to withdraw their mostly non-existent deposits. FTX took less than 48 hours to go from functionally but secretly to actually insolvent. As a kind of amusing epilogue, it is worth covering what happened with the Solana-based decentralized exchange Serum and its governance token SRM as FTX was beginning to wobble earlier in 2022. The situation wasn't critical to the collapse, but nicely demonstrates in practice several points we made above in theory. In short, because FTX owned enough SRM to unilaterally alter the smart contract and unrestrictedly govern, in effect, it was able to inflate the token supply by 60% in two huge mints on February 19th and May 25th. 
The relevance of these dates is that the GBTC arbitrage trade was beginning to invert around February, causing issues at BlockFi and 3AC while Terra Luna collapsed in May, and hence the mints were almost certainly related to trying to offset Alameda trading losses. Nonetheless, some portion of these tokens went on the FTX balance sheet and were marked at $2.2 billion at the time of the Coindesk leak, despite the total market capitalization of SRM being $88 million. So who and what do we blame? Is this the fault of DeFi, of decentralized finance, or of a centralized financial entity riding the hype of crypto, deliberately operating in a jurisdiction with barely credible enforcement mechanisms, freeing it up to take actions that would be deemed illegal in most advanced market economies? The straightforward answer is the latter. There is no doubt that immense and potentially unprecedented fraud was involved in FTX's collapse. But we would also argue that DeFi, masquerading as decentralized finance, and all the financial ignorance and misunderstanding this feeds on, had a crucial part to play as well. So too did the industry surrounding and promoting DeFi, exploiting financial ignorance and requiring precisely the likes of FTX to facilitate cashing out while others were cashing in. Let's play the blame game. Part 4. Let's play the blame game. Ladies and gents, let's pause right here to just say this is why you don't keep your Bitcoin on an exchange. This is why, not your keys, not your coins, because this is what you're exposed to. This is why you get a cold card. You get the coldest cold storage. You own your keys and you keep your Bitcoin safe. Not only is the cold card Mark IV super secure, it's air-gapped natively, it, uh, you have a backup with a micro SD card, um, but you also have like a lot of optionality in just the versatility of being able to use it. That you can, I, I, everybody knows that I really rave about the NFC, that you can just tap it to your phone and you know, sign, you get the transaction information and then sign it and send the transaction back to your app. But there are so many other great security features and just different ways to use this. Definitely, definitely go check it out. And don't forget that you can get 10% off with code Bitcoin Audible until Christmas. The link will be in the show notes as well as the discount code. So don't forget it right there in the description. With that, let's get back into the show. Part 4. Let's play the blame game. Others me most isn't that fraud is not nice or that fraud is mean. For 15,000 years, fraud and short-sighted thinking have never, ever worked. Not once. Eventually, you get caught. Things go south. When the hell did we forget all that? I thought we were better than this. I really did. Steve Carell as Mark Baum on Crypto VCs. It is hopefully clear from our explanation above that pretty much nothing about FTX was decentralized. We might think of it as CFI or centralized finance so as to distinguish it from DeFi. 
to reiterate the popular claim we identified in the introduction and which we intend to analyze. This was CFI, not DeFi, and, if anything, only further demonstrates the need for DeFi. Then again, FTX was predicated on the centralized access to and manipulation of DeFi. So what are we to think? Who are we to blame? With our framework from Part 2, Decentralized Finance, technically, we can more properly distinguish between DeFi and Decentralized Finance and tease out the importance of the former to FTX specifically and crypto in general. Pricing Capital In Part 1, Decentralized Finance Conceptually, we outlined two conceptual criteria we believe are relevant and necessary for a candidate decentralized finance to be credible. One, the flows of money have to be facilitating the pricing of capital and not just the movement of money for its own sake. And two, the money used as a flow to facilitate the pricing of capital also has to be decentralized. Recall that pricing capital is only meaningful insofar as it enables capital allocation that generates a return. It is really the return that is being priced. Throughout Part 2, Decentralized Finance, technically, we referenced Point 2 several times in building out our framework, but we did not again allude to Point 1. This was quite simply because we would have needed to point out every other paragraph that the generation of real economic returns is not happening. This would have distracted from the entirely separate set of flaws we were analyzing. But it is now appropriate to bring it up again as the final nail in the coffin of crypto DeFi. As mentioned in the introduction, our main problem with DeFi is that it is not decentralized and it is not finance. Although covered at length in Only the Strong Survive, let us briefly review what DeFi has actually achieved in relation to capital finance, and flows of money. But where does the yield come from? The absence of real returns on capital forces us to immediately question why these assets have any value. Returns can be, and often are, reframed as, quote, yield, and crypto has taken a liking to presenting its financial credentials with this terminology. But where does the yield come from? As we wrote in Section 3, Crypto is not finance of only the strong survive. Quote, A yield is the generated flow above maintenance or depreciation of the carrying capacity of some stock of economically productive assets. Less the recouped seeds for the next year's crop, a harvest is a yield from a sown field. Less the financing costs, the interest on a bond is a yield. If the issuing business is solvent and profitable in unit economic terms, and hence the part value of the principal is relatively assured, the market will settle on a value that implies a probability of all the interest being paid as promised. The market assesses the productive carrying capacity of economic stock, generating the ability to pay the flow of interest. So what yield is being farmed in crypto? There is transparently none. There are flows, but they are not generated by economically productive assets over time, but rather appear near instantaneously as a result of speculative pricing across non-productive assets. 
The word speculative is not a denigration. There is nothing wrong with speculative value. But there is something bizarre and circular about discrepancies on the potential future value itself forming the basis of profitable arbitrage that is then mislabeled as a, quote, yield, end quote. Crypto DeFi engages in arbitrary and automatable combinations of seniorage, securitization, rehypothecation, and leverage. It is the purest form of financialization ever conceived. The financialization of nothing at all. To be absolutely clear, there is no link whatsoever to returns on capital employed, hence no link to any real yield. And yet, yield farming was the largest so-called use case for crypto DeFi in the cycle leading up to the collapse of FTX, and was the composable primitive of just about everything else. Promises of guaranteed yield blitzed the markets with a ferocity that was impossible to keep up with. The meme became so powerful that individuals and entire firms alike dedicated all their resources to chasing the freshest yield farming opportunity presented to the market. Where did this yield come from? The simple answer is it came from a combination of seniorage and securitization and infusion from so-called venture capitalists, and was then fueled by trading, leverage, and rehypothecation. The yield is the friends we made along the way. The more involved answer is that the false perception of yield emerges from the perverse incentives created by the absence of our two fundamental conceptual criteria for decentralized finance. One, no real economic returns, and two, there being no decentralized money, combined with two novel properties of crypto, to which we have alluded several times, but on which we will now focus. Three, the ability to costlessly and centrally issue tokens, and four, immediate and total exit liquidity. A concept that ties much of this together is that of a vampire attack. The forking of the open source code of a smart contract or protocol without a token, so as to add a governance token or a bolt-on utility token, masquerading as governance. The rationale to do this is as follows. A governance token can redistribute the fee revenue from the service provided by the smart contract to its holders, or a utility token can promise rewards of the application's increasing popularity to its holders via later repurchase. Both strongly incentivize those holders to use and promote the service. Users getting in on something early, before it becomes wildly popular, and both contributing to and financially benefiting from that rise, can give the newer project a bootstrapped momentum that becomes self-fulfilling in a way the presumably useful original service likely never would have, even if it never had a fee in the first place. This approach incentivizes customers to become investors and investors to find more customers. Because these mechanics are widely understood in the space, there is intense pressure on just about every crypto DeFi project to preemptively add a governance token to ward off such an attack. This pressure is only increased for those on the verge of becoming popular, or perhaps which already have. 
Given we have the ability to costlessly and centrally issue tokens, tokens proliferate and we get rampant securitization. At the same time, given there are no real returns on which these securitizations are based, the easiest way to make a popular service in the first place is to create some means of financially manipulating tokens so as to produce the false perception of yield. Hence, DeFi projects proliferate and we get rampant trading, leverage, and rehypothecation. The final ingredients are the lack of decentralized money and immediate and total exit liquidity. The lack of decentralized money has a subtle implication around how the false perception of yield, hence the securities, are priced. The funding provided in exchange for tokens is money, almost always USD via primary offerings to crypto VCs and hedge funds. Hence, the tokens are most often quoted in this same denomination. But they do not generate fee revenue for holders in this denomination, but rather in the denomination of whatever tokens are being manipulated. This means the value of the governance token in question is, in practice, dependent on seeking to tactically boost the market price of the manipulated tokens, i.e. wash trade them, in order to create the false perception of yield for just long enough to cash back out into real money. It is therefore not dependent on improving the service or attempting to ground the entire edifice in real returns. Attempting to ground a project in real returns and gradually improve it as it proves its value in the marketplace is the essence of capital formation. But it takes a long time. Immediate exit liquidity ties together the toxic cocktail of poorly interlocking incentives. Any potentially good idea will be pressured into a positive feedback loop of token issuance and aimless velocity and spiral out of control. Ironically, it will do so in a way that both introduces at least one security and possibly more and yet deviates further and further from creating any real capital such a security might usefully price in the first place. Some of this might sound like a natural analog to a VC investing in the equity of a company, but this comparison is revealing of several important differences. 1. As per Part 2, Decentralized Finance technically, there's no credible enforcement mechanism for the supposed commitments. 2. The hope in a VC investment is for an eventual return on capital to justify the price of the equity being bought. And 3. Founders and VCs do not have immediate exit liquidity in any startup equity, never mind all startup equity. Their equity will become valuable and tradable, hence possible to exit, to the extent a return-generating operation is successfully developed. None of this applies in crypto DeFi. Given there is no prospect of returns, but only yield traceable to token issuance, the incentive is not to invest in long-term productive stocks of capital, but in the short-term perception of flows of other money into this money. Given VCs have immediate and total exit liquidity, their incentives are not to nurture a highly uncertain business for as long as it takes to stabilize its return profile, but to maximize, one, the amount of tokens they are allocated for free as early as possible, and two, 
the price at which they can unload it as quickly as possible. Given protocol developers, the equivalent of companies, are similarly directly exposed to the immediate price rather than the long-term value of the capital they are responsible for creating, their incentives are equally aligned with VCs and misaligned with buyers and holders of the token. And given there is no credible enforcement mechanism, even referring to a quote responsibility is naive, as they can do whatever they want. Unsurprisingly, what they tend to do aligns perfectly with their own warped incentives. There are two main avenues by which these incentives are followed, fueling and magnifying the short-term perception of yield and creating exit liquidity. While there are developers and investors in crypto just trying to build useful things without a token, this is the purpose of vast swaths of the crypto industry and is enabled by VCs, hedge funds, and exchanges. Crypto VCs seed both the initial tokens and any higher-level protocols that in turn allow for leverage and rehypothecation to increase flows and inflate valuations. If these protocols throw off additional governance tokens, i.e. they throw securitization into the mix as well, all the better. Yet more tokens to be priced, traded, leveraged, and rehypothecated. Crypto exchanges create an on-ramp for retail dollars to provide the liquidity necessary for superficial validation of price movements, which in turn gives VCs an off-ramp to cash out. Crypto hedge funds typically specialize in arbitraging the relatively inefficient markets typically found on crypto exchanges, especially in light of the opportunity for insider trading, given the securities in question are unregistered. But they sometimes also take directional bets and even seed native governance utility and voucher tokens in a similar manner to crypto VCs. Often the line between crypto VCs and hedge funds is blurry. What is amusing, especially in hindsight, is that very little of this needs to be risky, because even if this is all done in perfectly good faith and belief in the potential value of the protocols and tokens created, it is functionally equivalent to extracting trading value from retail investors, just with a little wash trading thrown in as a honeypot. There is some timing risk for crypto VCs and hedge funds seeding the tokens, but given the exit liquidity is immediate, the period of directional exposure can easily be dwarfed by the size and immediacy of the payout. Running a crypto exchange needn't be risky at all, as it only requires facilitating trades without any directional exposure whatsoever. Likewise, arbitraging inefficient markets as a crypto hedge fund. And yet, Alameda and FTX managed to do this in about as risky a way as possible. So risky, in fact, that they resorted to fraud to try to cover it up. As we know, even that didn't work. Alameda, FTX, FTT, and more. It is important to point out that the opacity of the mechanics just outlined is basically the entire idea. Fraud is easier to disguise when you create an allure of grandeur to mask a concept so basic a middle schooler can see it doesn't add up. There were three core pillars to the story of the collapse, Alameda, FTX, and FTT. 
Alameda was a crypto hedge fund which aimed to make money arbitraging and making directional bets on native, governance, utility, and voucher tokens. While not strictly speaking a venture capital firm, it fulfilled essentially the same role given the blurriness mentioned above. FTX was a crypto exchange that offered leverage and other bespoke products to customers looking to speculate on token prices. Lastly, there was FTT, a voucher token created by FTX with the value proposition to buyers that some of the profits from FTX would be used to purchase this token at various points in time. All three of these intertwined with each other, building layers of unnecessary and unjustifiable risk into a gigantic house of cards. But key to appreciate is that none of this would have been possible without DeFi. Alameda arbitraged and directionally traded DeFi tokens of all stripes. FTX enabled this trading on an exchange explicitly encouraging leverage. Both entities, quote, invested in tokens, perhaps most notably having an important hand in getting Solana off the ground, an entire blockchain, the entire purpose of which was to accelerate DeFi, including being amongst the largest holders of its native token, Sol. FTT was, of course, a DeFi token, as was almost everything else on FTX's balance sheet at the time of collapse. Terra Luna was DeFi and kicked off the contagion leading to this debacle, and there is no incentive for anybody involved to try to base any of this on truly peer-to-peer -peer technology because that would undermine the creation of a maximally liquid and global marketplace from which to extract trading fees. These institutions may have been CFI, but their existence, operation, and failure were predicated on DeFi. Part 5. DeFi's Fatal Conceit You know, before you're holding your own keys, you also need to know the where and how of getting your Bitcoin. Well, that's Swan Bitcoin. You are welcome. Swan is the literal no-noise, all-signal onboarding service. It's the easiest, best place to buy and to set up an automatic plan um, I've been doing it for, I just don't, I don't even know how long, but I have been automatically purchasing and automatically withdrawing. So it literally purchases Bitcoin for me in the same amount every single week and then sends it to my keys while I do other things, while I do the show, while I have life happen and hang out with my kid and my family. And I'm not trading. I'm not stressing out about whether or not I have too much leverage. I'm just stacking sats, and not to mention that Swan has quite possibly the best repository of information, articles, um, episodes to dig into, like the Bitcoin canon. Like if you want to learn anything about Bitcoin or everything about Bitcoin, Swan Bitcoin has it. Dig through their stuff. It is unbelievable the resources that they have, and the team themselves is there to help you is there to answer questions, to, to put you in the right direction. And with Swan Private, they have the concierge service for your business account, your retirement, your trust, you name it. Check them out at swanbitcoin.com slash guide. That is my link. You will find it right there in the show notes. Part 5. DeFi's Fatal Conceit 
and they're like 10x. That's insane. 1x is the norm. And so then, you know, X token price goes way up. And now it's a $130 million market cap token because of, you know, the bullishness of people's usage of the box. And now all of a sudden, of course, the smart money's like, oh, wow, this thing's now yielding like 60% a year in X tokens. Of course, I'll take my 60% yield, right? So they go and pour another $300 million on the box and you get a psych and then it goes to infinity and then everyone makes money. Sam Bankman Freed on Boxes While all the parties involved in this scandal were centralized entities, it is important to realize that the investment strategy, quote-unquote, employed by the symbiosis of crypto VCs, exchanges, and hedge funds is utterly dependent on DeFi. And furthermore, that DeFi without real returns has no avenue for appreciation or even much usage without this CeFi catalyst fueling the fire. The idea that DeFi had nothing to do with this, or that the solution is even more DeFi, is little more than gaslighting. Do you need a token for that? For all the centralized machinations, for all the financial engineering to pump prices, and even for all the fraud, it is clear enough that the root cause of the chaos is the seniorage of centralized and costless issuance of tokens. You cannot fund, lever, rehypothecate, securitize, exchange, and cash out on a token that has not been issued. In Only the Strong Survive, we repeatedly addressed the rhetorical question, do you need a token for that? Functionally, the answer is almost always that you do not, since tokens invariably capture one of money for X controlled by Y, which will lose the fight for liquidity to money for everybody controlled by nobody, or unregistered securities, the governance of which essentially runs on trust, as discussed at length above. But conceptually, this points to an even bigger problem what we might call DeFi's fatal conceit. Token issuance in crypto is about as centralized as can be. Typically, developers have preferential access to or even control of a protocol in which they sell some or other variety of application equity, a fee-generating smart contract in which they sell governance tokens, whether with access to the smart contract or as bolt-on utility tokens performing decentralization theater or a related business for which they sell utility or voucher tokens. In all cases, this is always having first costlessly allocated a decent proportion of the tokens to themselves or their crypto VC and hedge fund backers. This is a stark contrast to the decentralized token issuance of Bitcoin, which happens via mining and therefore proof of work. Hence, it is not seniorage at all, but rather the product of the costly enabling of a functioning decentralized network. Counterintuitive as it may be, and contrary once again to faux libertarian pretenses, removing the apparent centralization of a credible enforcement mechanism of counterparty commitments is an incredibly centralizing force. Be it legal shareholder rights, free market enforcement, automatic enforcement, or however else it is achieved, credible enforcement levels the playing field between the sellers and the buyers of securities by ensuring that promises are kept. In other words, 
The principal-agent problem is real and serious. Removing a means of keeping it in check, whether in the pursuit of so-called decentralization or otherwise, inevitably has the effect of pushing agency costs unboundedly high. Ultimately, this is profoundly centralizing, both in the costs themselves and in the aftermath. The already powerful reap illegitimate agency benefits while this is not yet widely appreciated, and once it is, the powerless cannot participate in the wealth creation and risk mitigation that securities enable. Insofar as it is predicated on centrally and costlessly issued tokens, DeFi is unavoidably and unforgivably centralized. True decentralized finance would use decentralized money, automatic enforcement where no human judgment is required, and credible, real-world enforcement where it is. And let us not forget, the very first domino in the great crypto crash of 2022 and from which the eventual collapse of FTX can be directly traced was the DPEG of the UST stablecoin, programmatic hyperinflation in Luna, and the sudden collapse of the entire Terra Luna ecosystem. Terra Luna was not CeFi in the slightest, but classic DeFi. It was an algorithmic stablecoin of the more poorly designed variety. Its demise can be traced to this more insidious form of centralization in token issuance, in this case to construct an astonishingly stupid edifice capturing all of funding, leverage, rehypothecation, securitization, exchange, and cashing out. Present co-author Alan Farrington, along with Nick Carter, went into rigorous detail in All Falls Down, but the design of Terra Luna can more or less be summed up with the following comparison quoted from the paper. Quote, A bank that claims it literally cannot go bankrupt because it can always issue more equity will very soon discover it can go bankrupt because the market will take this claim as well enough proof that the bank is utterly incompetent at capital allocation. Given a fractional reserve bank is fundamentally highly leveraged, the redemption of liabilities in these circumstances will almost certainly exceed the absolute value of the reserve assets and the equity base by many multiples. Issuing equity is not creating new value. It is diluting the old value of existing shareholders. If a bank is having its liabilities called in at a higher value than there even is of reserves to liquidate and equity to dilute, it will collapse. This is more or less what just happened to Terra. The only difference was that the spiral of default was driven by an algorithm rather than by any social process. The capital allocation was not the result of dumb humans, but of dumb code. It was the dumbest smart contract of all time. And so, we come full circle to the fundamental trade-off of automatic enforcement and the necessity of human judgment for capital allocation. Terra Luna tried to have it both ways, and quickly ended up having neither. So much for DeFi. What then of decentralized finance? The Great Definancialization we believe the core of the cultural fissure between crypto and Bitcoin comes down to financialization. While the ethos of Bitcoin is to definancialize, the ethos of crypto is to financialize. We repeat our characterization of this tendency from above. 
DeFi engages in arbitrary and automatable combinations of seniorage, securitization, rehypothecation, and leverage. It is the purest form of financialization ever conceived. The financialization of nothing at all. At the time, this was an observation, but we can now offer an explanation. Without real returns on capital, without real yields, yet with the ability to centrally and costlessly issue tokens, financialization is the only avenue not only for exit liquidity, but for any activity whatsoever. The financialization of everything was absolutely behind FTX's various shenanigans. We believe the cultural and in some sense structural commitment and impulse to financialization means crypto is likely to stray further and further away from decentralized finance. Peer-to-peer finance is impossible to imagine in crypto because it presupposes only decentralized money. As Stephen Lubka recently wrote for Coindesk, summarizing the FTX debacle from a Bitcoiner's perspective, quote, Bitcoin is trying to definancialize an overly leveraged financialized world. Crypto is trying to further financialize everything. Crypto wants art, music, games, login credentials, and anything else they can get their hands on to become financialized. Bitcoiners think leverage, subsidization of risk, and turning everything into a speculative asset is actually massively net negative for civilization. Financialization is itself a product of easy and political money, a necessarily centralized phenomenon. In fact, crypto as a broader economic phenomenon is impossible to fully comprehend without appreciating the infusions of tens of billions of dollars into crypto exchanges, VCs, and hedge funds, as described above. This capital is allocated in the first instance in order to desperately chase yield for insolvent pension funds due to worldwide monetary debasement and artificially low interest rates. We would argue it is fundamentally misallocated due to the drive of easy money to financialize everything it can. Yield chasing is egregious in crypto DeFi, but it is not unique. What is unique is the absence of any real yields being financialized. That said, the presence of real yields to financialize hardly fixes the overall problem. One way to conceive of what a security does is that it crystallizes potential future value into an instrument that can be priced in the present. If price signals are honest because money is sound, this is an extremely useful method to enable the efficient allocation of capital. But if they are dishonest because money is easy and political, it amounts to little more than stealing from the future and consuming more than one has produced. If we do this solely because we have liabilities to meet in the present, in other words, yield chasing, but are indifferent to the effect on our liabilities in the future, we drive even more capital misallocation, make these liabilities even more unaffordable when they come due, and set up more and increasingly desperate yield chasing down the line. Under such circumstances, the proliferation of securities is not a good thing at all. It is a symptom of a broken system of money. As Parker Lewis writes in Bitcoin is the Great Definancialization, quote, At a fundamental level, there is nothing inherently wrong with joint stock companies, bond offerings, or any pooled investment vehicle for that matter. 
While individual investment vehicles may be structurally flawed, there can be and often is value created through pooled investment vehicles and capital allocation functions. Pooled risk isn't the issue, nor is the existence of financial assets. Instead, the fundamental problem is the degree to which the economy has become financialized and that it is increasingly an unintended consequence of otherwise rational responses to a broken and manipulated monetary structure. The key potential of Bitcoin is to return to sound money, proper pricing of capital, and definancialization. This would mean a reduction in the number and importance of securities because securities would no longer have to play the role of de facto money while money continues to fail. However, crucially, those that remain would be far more useful, functional, and true to their core purpose of enabling the proper pricing of capital. This is the root of our cultural concern for crypto DeFi. The cultural and arguably even structural commitment to financialization is extremely difficult to reconcile with this core purpose of securities. In a sense, none of this is surprising given the foundations of crypto DeFi. If you jump straight to decentralized securities without first nailing down decentralized money and peer-to-peer -peer technology, the urge to financialize is obvious because what other value or utility can you even attempt to provide? The unfortunate reality for crypto is that most people have no need to ever interact with securities, or for that matter, with finance proper. If their money were truly sound, there would be no need to chase yield, no need to invest outside one's intentionally risk-seeking expertise, and no need to trade upfront money for the rights to future flows of money outside the direct operation of a return-seeking business. Peer-to-peer -peer digital bearer assets may be of use, but global price discovery and liquidity, not so much. This sentiment can be reframed in terms of DeFi's fatal conceit. In an ideal world, the human judgment necessary for real capital allocation is not something in which most people should have to or want to partake unless they actively seek out this risk. Decentralized money, insofar as it enables saving and spending, soundly and uncensorably, is a worthy goal. If we consider traditional finance to be exploitative, opaque, inefficient, and so on, we would posit that the ideal solution is not necessarily to democratize the ability to engage in finance, however more fairly, transparently, and efficiently we might hope to achieve that. The ideal solution is rather to remove any dependency on finance whatsoever for the vast majority of people who shouldn't ever need to interact with it. We again commend stablecoins, by far crypto's most worthy achievement and best provision of value and utility, for meaningfully extending the ability of millions to save more soundly and spend more freely all over the world, and in a more decentralized manner than what for most is the alternative, if not perfectly so. But the idea however implicit, that everybody should hold their own securities is profoundly misguided. Furthermore, the idea that this drive to financialization ought to be so thoroughly decentralized that we ought to securitize not only pseudo-financial flows, but contrive reasons to securitize inherently technical projects as well, 
is even more regressive. The FAT protocol thesis, off-championed as a brilliant new incentive mechanism for the development of free and open-source software, is better understood as a way of privately capturing the value of things that are naturally public and providing an avenue to immediately realize this captured value before any real capital has been created. If Bitcoin can be understood as a way to genuinely decentralize public value transfer, crypto can equally be understood as a method of privately capturing and re-centralizing some of this value leak, of financializing the commons. On the other hand, the cultural norm in Bitcoin development is to shirk tokens if at all possible and find ways to incorporate Bitcoin, both the network and the asset, into peer-to-peer projects as directly and trustlessly as possible. In particular, to find ways to enable users to monetize with decentralized money and without financializing the projects themselves. This usually requires real capital put at risk in order to offer a service users pay for. There are no privileged, centralized parties extracting rents from users hoping to overcome this cost with speculative gains. Thus, applications can be meaningfully democratic and credibly decentralized. The Lightning Network fits this profile to a T, as do circa 2019 liquidity pools in crypto DeFi, it must be said. It is hence instructive to compare the paths of each in the meantime, as one impatiently veered into costless and centralized token issuance to further financialize this service, and the other on patiently building real tools with a peer-to-peer ethos, no token, no exit liquidity, and no centralized control. The aversion to tokens for intrinsically technical and non-financial projects strips the developers both of centralized control of the free and open-source software they are creating and of immediate and total exit liquidity in its value. The only way to realize this value privately is to utilize this commons tool within a return-generating enterprise that compounds capital. That is to say, the default assumption is that securities are not required, but if they are, they tend to be predicated on pricing capital and utilizing decentralized money. Not DeFi, but decentralized finance. Green Eggs and Ham I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. Dr. Seuss on Centrally and Costlessly Issued Tokens Our core issue with DeFi is that it is not decentralized and it is not finance. Nonetheless, we support the idea of decentralized finance in theory, even if DeFi isn't it in practice. We also believe a variety of decentralized finance will emerge on Bitcoin, and to some extent already has. These were the core claims of our previous paper, Only the Strong Survive, but we did not explain what we deemed to be workable decentralized finance in theory, or what constraints might limit how it might develop. In this paper, we have given a framework by which claims to decentralized finance can be assessed and found once again that the vast majority of DeFi does not read favorably. While we admit there are some avenues for DeFi to approach decentralized finance and that it is not quite a technical impossibility, 
We think they are highly unlikely to be pursued. We think culture is the more important driver, and as of this writing, that the culture of crypto DeFi is actively pushing in the wrong direction. The FTX debacle, of which we gave a brief overview, is a perfect example of the consequences of this attitude. Claiming that FTX only further demonstrates the need for DeFi is misguided at best. DeFi enabled FTX to happen. The relationship between DeFi and the FTX debacle can be best described as it takes two to tango. Decentralized finance as we hope to see it develop would have none of the properties we identified as key to crypto DeFi and inevitable in FTX. It would facilitate the pricing of capital, not the illusion of velocity and a valve for exit liquidity. It would natively interact with decentralized money, not centrally and costlessly issued tokens. And it would operate uncensorably, enabling truly decentralized participation in the wealth it is able to create. We see paths for this vision of decentralized finance to gradually be built. But DeFi ain't it. And that was Green Eggs and Ham, Decentralized Finance, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly by Alan Farrington and Anders Larson, or Big Al. Wow. So that was amazing. Um, I, the, the level of specificity that they broke down, I, this was a great, great pairing with Only the Strong Survive. Um, I feel like it took the... The foundation that only the strong survive stood on with the the financialization of financialization, the finan financialization for its own sake of nothing, essentially. And, and it's funny, you see that the most quote-unquote successful of the DeFi projects were tokens that were made to create leveraging systems and trading systems so that you could trade these centrally and costlessly issued tokens, which means their sole value is in being able to trade something that has no connection to the real world. There's no real capital behind any of it. And that's ultimately why it works for the time that it works is because nothing real has to be behind it. It's just, it's just this giant circular chasing of velocities and using leverage to exaggerate the velocity and the supposed yield of each individual thing because if you can leverage one thing if you can leverage a collateral of x token in order to amplify the amount of y token you can purchase the y token goes up in price its price moves faster than it otherwise would which allows someone to use y token as collateral to leverage and amplify its purchase of z token like it just it's just over and over and over again and then obviously everything that would take the the significant cuts the the quote-unquote rent-seeking protocols are the ones that just enable this this constant rehypothecation or um re-leveraging of the same baseless thing to essentially create this giant cycle of bigger and bigger and faster and faster until total collapse because at the end of the day there's no the real world doesn't even isn't even involved in this and necessarily so like this one of the things that they broke down in this which i've got a lot of different segments a lot of uh, different um sections that i saved from this 
Uh, and I want to go into it in more detail. I'm going to have a full on guys take, which will pair this with the th with the uh, thread that I brought up about I wanted the crypto people, and I got a lot of participation. So you know, kudos to them. But talking about what blockchains are going to be used for, how we're going to use blockchains for voting and tickets to concerts, and we're going to have NFTs to own houses and all of this stuff. And I wanted to break down those actual problems. What are the problems with owning a house? What are the problems with medical records? What are the problems with authentication and a decentralized identity system or a decentralized social media? Whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish or voting, what are the actual problems? And does blockchain actually connect to those things at all? Or are we taking blockchains because of the ability to globally enter into a global price discovery with a vast number of just straight speculative retail investors who have no idea that they're all everybody's just chasing yield and you immediately open these things up to exit liquidity just on the promise of we're going to fix voting one day but then the VCs just immediately exit like in a normal startup environment you have nothing to exit on you buy in, you invest in the capital because you believe in the project, because you believe in the company. And the company takes that money and they build things. They make capital in the real world, which is slow and difficult, but it's crucial. It's the process of expanding and innovating in society. It's entrepreneurship. But you can't just exit nobody. Like the process of the investment is figuring out who's willing to put up capital for this. There are no future cash flows, or there are no cash flows at this point. There's not even a product to then turn right around and dump this on a global retail market and open this up for this costless token that they could just print and then throw out there. And now all of a sudden, everybody's speculating in it. The speculating on it is to cre is to create the VC environment with absolutely no connection whatsoever to what's actually happening, to what's actually being done. It's like that guy, um, uh, it's such an example of, this is fiat, by the way. This is why a lot of us Bitcoiners and the Bitcoin maximalists in particular will ex try to explain that crypto is just an extension of fiat. It is just the, the end game of gross misallocation and over-financialization of everything in the fiat landscape basically mapped out onto crypto or mapped out on trying to map it out onto bitcoin but they can't do it with bitcoin because bitcoin is sound money so they have to make their own costless token but it's the ultimate end game of that philosophy that's why that's why we say crypto is the polar opposite culture than bitcoin but everybody gets this confusion that crypto is this one thing and bitcoin is just like the biggest player they literally have nothing to do with each other they are polar opposite philosophies that are using software that looks similar. But from a concept of the economics of it, of the philosophy of the conservatism, of the high versus low time preference, they are polar opposites. They try to start from the same point, but the crypto, the crypto mindset, the crypto culture is just this aggressive chasing of yield and everything, like it's financialization. It is financialization for its own sake. Um, without the connection to reality. And that's what fiat has become. That's what the banking system as a whole has become. That's why you get that. Uh, the thing I was about to mention was the guy on the video. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, and it's amazing. I'll see if I can find the link um, and put it in the show notes. But it's a clip of uh, a dude on CNBC, or I'm pretty sure it's CNBC, um, and he's talking about how 
X company is going to do really well and everything's looking healthy and, you know, everything that they're doing is just smart and it's right in line with the market. And then the commentator, the, the uh, interview interviewer asks, oh, well, what does the company do? And then he just blanks. And he's like, um, uh, I, I couldn't hear you. And he says, well, what does the company do? And he says, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, uh, it's not, something's wrong. And then he like hangs up and like, that's it. That is what the space has become. And that is crypto. That, that, the ex crypto is the extension of that. It doesn't matter what it does. It doesn't matter if there's any capital formation. It doesn't matter if anybody's using fees. We're chasing yield. We're chasing, we're chasing the money printer. We're chasing the newly issued tokens. We're chasing the arbitrage. And we're building arbitrage systems and uh, systems and networks that are super valuable because we can just really quick make smart contracts and governance tokens to add to new collateral and add to new leverage to get us to trade faster and more and have more things to plug into this system all that are nothing. They're all just plugging into themselves. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't want to go too far into this because I, I want to dig into this again in the blockchains episode um, because I think all of this is tied together. It's because the excuse for we're going to make blockchains for, credit, uh, for medical records and supply chains and voting is really just that because you can costlessly issue tokens that you can sell and you have that immediate exit liquidity and this immediate market without ever having to provide a product and thus that gets incentivized like it doesn't even matter if you hope to make a project down the line what happens is you get a lot of investors previously when you issue the token and then you sell it and you raise money for the project and then the thing that you optimize is getting people on for exit liquidity is to get access to the capital which which means that all you all you you end up absolving yourself of the responsibility of the project altogether not to mention there's no enforcement mechanism so it doesn't even matter so if like like think about it if two people are you have to do two things for a person one person is on you day in and day out and they're like when is this going to get done what are you doing on this um you know how, how what's your progress give me an update i need a return what's the percentage that i'm going to get like if they're just on you and they need you to produce something real, that's what you're going to do. If there's another person who you owe the same amount of work or the same thing or a similar project, but they're just kind of like whatever about it and they email you every week, it's like, hey, you know, just checking in on the project, which one are you going to prioritize? I'll let you make that, I'll, I'll let you privately answer that question and understand that in crypto, in the DeFi space, what is the, the one that is the, Constant berated, constantly berated, um, always there, um, thrown in your face. Do you have as much yield as your competitor? Is the speculative game? Is the I'm invested? How leveraged are you? How much are you grabbing of this 200% move in a period of two weeks? How are you maxing this out? Are you letting your your VC investors who don't even have the slightest idea what your project is or even care? Do they have exit liquidity? Are you on this exchange? Did you get this review from BitBoy or not? That's the one that's always in their face. That's the one that is loud. The one that's slow. The one without any pressure. The one that's just like community members checking in every six months of, did you ever actually do this thing? That's the actual project. That's the actual creation of something that people use. They don't care. What they want is another announcement. They want to hear that they're partnered with Microsoft. They want to hear that 
they got listed on Coinbase. They want to hear that a celebrity talked about him on TV. Because why? Pump the coin. Exit the coin. Find the next one to do the exact same thing on. And that's why even the people in this space, in crypto, that are well-intentioned, that are trying to make projects happen, the token is the worst thing to happen to an actual product. Creating the token and turning it into a trading game and a yield game is the worst thing to happen for their desire to actually produce something of value or use. And that's what I think blockchain does to all of those other projects. But we will get into specifics and we will also get into why blockchain is has many pieces of the solutions of these things. And it's why it's so easy to try to cram blockchain into these problems like voting or medical records. It looks like it because some of the pieces that make up Bitcoin are the solutions to those problems. But you have to, under, you have to think about the problems. You have to understand what actually is the issue to find the most efficient way, the simplest way to solve it, not to try to cram and twist a blockchain to make it part of the solution when it's actually like a terrible solution. One of the perfect examples is using an NFT to own or unlock a house. It's so absurd but it, and absurd to the point of hilarity. And I've got some really fun analogies. So we will cover that in the next guy's take. But I want to close this one out. I don't want to go too far um, on it because, like I said, there's a lot to cover. Um, I want to say thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to CoinKite, and to Fold for sponsoring this show. Swan Bitcoin is the best simplest bitcoin onboarding if you're looking to get bitcoin go to swan bitcoin if you're looking to keep that bitcoin safe get yourself a hardware security device from CoinKite. they are top of the line and if you're looking to get sats back on your fiat life fold is it they are they're like the trinity they're the one two three punch of making bitcoin making your bitcoin safe and getting it easily and automatically links and all that good stuff in the show notes um i want to thank big al and Alan Farrington for this piece. Uh, they know that I am a big fan um, and uh, always appreciate their writing. Uh, and for everybody who says they're long-winded, man, that's what it takes to get the good stuff. It's not long-winded. That's not what this is. It's thorough. If you try to cram something like this into a page, you're going to have to do shortcuts. You're going to have to skip things in your thought process which are going to get twisted and shared on Twitter and will be easy to debunk because you can just assume that, you know, if you go straight from step one to step four in your thinking because you don't have enough space to detail step two and three, it's really easy to just fill in the blank with a straw man of step two and three and then debunk that. And for the absolute absurdity of Sam Bankman Freed, of Vitalik, of... Rather shocking number of people in the crypto space talking about how long form writing is bad or stupid or a waste. Maybe you should take that as a warning or some sort of indication of the level of care and thoughtfulness that they put into what they're doing. Maybe, just maybe. If they're not willing to devote 24 pages of reading to figure out how something works or to consider that maybe you were doing it wrong, maybe they apply that same level of thoughtlessness to other things. 
Just saying. Just saying. It is a consideration. All right. <laughs> with, with that, uh, I am Guy Swan, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we're going to have uh, some really fun episodes, like I said, the guys take. Uh, we got Alex, uh, uh, Alex Gladstein's uh, piece coming soon. And also, uh, I think we're going to dig into the Twitter thread about all of the Twitter censorship um, uh, that just got dropped a little while ago. So that will be interesting. Stay tuned. There is a lot going on in the space. There is a lot to learn. And there is a lot to read. Subscribe. Boost on Fountain. Try to get, try to get those numbers up, baby. Linux Unplugged. I, I swear... I swear, I'm, I've, I, we have, we're going to have words, sirs. We're going to have words. They took advantage of the fact that I made it known. And we're, mm, it's happening. Okay, uh, <laughs> we're closing out today. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Subscribe. I'll catch you on the next one. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. A complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that works. The inverse proposition also appears to be true. A complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be made to work. John Gall This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.